we'll get down to the burden of the message proper. Luke chapter 23 then. We're going to read together a few verses from verses 26 to 31. Luke chapter 23 and then verse 26 through the 31. Let us all read and hear together the word of the Lord. And as they led Jesus away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people, and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves for your children for behold the days are coming in the which they shall say blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck then shall they begin to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us if they do these things in a green tree what shall be done in the dry amen we end our reading there at the verse 31, we know the Lord will indeed bless the public reading of his own precious and infallible word. Let's just bow briefly in prayer, please. Father in heaven, I want to thank thee for the meetings thus far. We bless thee, Lord, for a sense of the divine presence. We thank thee for the help of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of God's people, their faithfulness in attending. We thank thee, Lord, for tokens for good. We thank thee for unsaved that have been in in every single meeting. We thank thee for what God is doing. And Lord, we take a step back and we acknowledge thee. We know, Lord, except the Father draw them, they can never come. We realize except the Spirit regenerate and convert, Lord, then we can do nothing. We realize, O God, that thy work is a sovereign work in salvation. And we acknowledge it. But you've chosen the human instrument. And we ask, O God, you will bless the means ordained to save them that believe the preaching of the old evangel to this end almighty god i stand forward now before thee and this people as a candidate for the infilling of the spirit of the living god i pray lord that heaven would look upon my need and see that need and meet it now by filling me with the holy spirit i pray lord for that unction and for that anointing and that endowment of power from on high the words of christ come to mind if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Father, I ask thee now in the Saviour's name for the infilling with wisdom and power of thy blessed Holy Spirit. I pray for help to rightly divide the word of truth, to exalt and uplift the Lord Jesus Christ and the bloodstained banner of his cross. Grant, O God, the hearing ear and the understanding heart now and bless both those that are physically present and those that are tuning in via the social media website. God, grant that you'll bless the preaching of the gospel. And Father, in answer now to prayer, save the lost, restore the backslidden, revive the church, glorify thy son, we ask these things in his precious and worthy name. And the people of God said, Amen. We move now out of Pilate's judgment hall and we're starting our journey proper to the cross. I know that we have been in the house of Annas. We've watched the pre-trial of Christ. We've been in the house of Caiaphas. 
right from 1 o'clock to 3 a.m. in the morning. We have heard about the religious leaders not only examining Christ and falsely accusing him, but then buffeting him, spitting upon him and slapping him. The so-called religious leaders of Israel treating the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. We know that he was arraigned and he was sent to Pilate and Pilate sent him to Herod. And then he came back to Pilate for that final trial about 6 a.m. in the morning. And then he was handed over for scourging. And then the Roman soldiers with their cruelty and their wickedness after they had beaten and bruised and battered and bloodied the body of Christ. We find him now walking, carrying his cross. We come to just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. A large crowd had gathered. Among them were these ladies called the daughters of Jerusalem. I believe most of them were what is known as the women that gave up their very lives and for three and a half years they followed Christ and they ministered to his physical need. They were as faithful as Peter. They were as true as John and they loved the Savior and they couldn't understand how they could take the one who is the Son of God, the Messiah Prince, the promised deliverer of Israel and treat him in such a wicked way, hand him over to Roman enemies and then to see that form carrying his cross, thorn crowned. Remember the very hairs had been plucked from off his face. I told you about the word, why smitest thou me? It literally means to break the skin. We have often seen in people fighting and you've seen the outcome and result of that fight that they've got a busted lip, they require stitches. I have no doubt whatsoever. Whenever in the house of Caiaphas, one of those Pharisees took their, his hand and he slapped or he punched the mouth of Christ that it would have required stitches even today in today's uh, medical field and world. I've no doubt when he walked that road to Calvary, whenever those daughters of Jerusalem saw him, the blood was seeping through his garment from the scourging he received at the hands of the Roman whip. I've no doubt that the very hairs were plucked out in the skin and the blood was running down. Those thorns were still bleeding, even though they were plaited and placed upon him about 5 a.m. in the morning. He was still there with blood congealed on his face. You could see his body wrecked, fatigued, and he was walking, carrying his cross, stumbling until one Simon Asserinium was compelled to carry the cross for Christ. It was at that juncture whenever uh, we see the Lord Jesus Christ preaching what we will call his final sermon. Now I know he had sayings upon the cross. Just to throw out a bit of controversial uh, theology here, I believe there were eight sayings on the cross. You can tell me which one is the eighth tomorrow night whenever you have it studied. And maybe you know it already and you can tell me at the door on the way out. We talk about seven sayings from the cross. I believe there were eight sayings from the cross. And I'm not going into uh, other translations of the Bible straight from Holy Scripture. I'm convinced that there were eight sayings at the cross. But however, these are the final words of Christ before he suffered as our substitute for sin. These are the last words of Christ before he was crucified as the sin bearer and the lamb and the scapegoat for our salvation. Therefore, they should be considered with solemnity and with humility as they will be of great benefit to us all, saint and sinner alike, in the glorious gospel of God's grace. They were spoken to what is known as the daughters of Jerusalem. Those women, I believe, who had followed Christ 
and ministered to him of their own substance for nearly three and a half years. They faithfully followed the master. And now they witnessed what had happened to him. They couldn't understand it. And they followed. And the Bible tells us that as they went that journey with him to the cross. And remember, we're not at Calvary yet. But we're at the scene where Christ himself halts on his journey to the cross. And he lifts himself up. And he turns himself around. And he addresses publicly the daughters of Jerusalem. They walked alongside him. And here's the scene. They were literally bewailing him. The word there in the Greek means to beat the chest. It means to really push your chest in and to beat it with your fists. It's a sign of sorrow and great grief. It's a sign that you're lamenting. It's a sign outwardly and publicly that inside something's hurting and you're beating on your chest like that. And then they began to wail because of him. And the Greek word means that they literally began to shout. You have seen in some of the Middle Eastern countries whenever there's been a bomb or a shooting or a killing. Or there's been some uh, suicide bomber. You have seen those ladies going along with their heads covered and their faces covered. And you've seen them shouting and screaming and howling. Well that's exactly what you could say of the daughters of Jerusalem. They were going along. and There was nothing silent about the walk to Calvary. Those who were watching were viewing Christ with silence. But not the daughters of Jerusalem. They were bewailing him. Beating their chest. And they were lifting their hands and they were crying out loud. And it was at that juncture that Christ halted and he turned around and he addressed the daughters of Jerusalem. And he said these words, daughters of Jerusalem, I'm convinced he addressed the multitude. There's no doubt he's addressing us today as well. It's part of the canon of Holy Scripture. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep. Not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming. And there is a twofold prophecy here. The days are coming. And that's a reference to AD 70. Whenever Titus, the Roman governor, came into the city of Jerusalem and he wasted it. They tell us, the historian, they tell us that Titus killed something in the region of one point. One million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. He wasted the city. He desecrated the temple. He destroyed every brick. You remember what the Lord said? The Lord said about those buildings that they will be torn down. He was making a reference to Titus in AD 70. It's historically true. That he entered into Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple and he threw down the bricks and the walls of the temple. And they tell us 1.1 million Jews, men, women and children were butchered in the city of Jerusalem. And there were hundreds of thousands taken into captivity under the Roman governor Titus. And when the Lord said to the daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Because judgment's coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Did he not stand that day and weep over the city of Jerusalem? There are three times in scripture you will find our Savior weeping. The grave of Lazarus. He wept in the garden, I believe. And over the city of Jerusalem. And every time it was because of the results of sin. Every time Christ wept. When's the last time we 
wept over our sin. When was the last time a sinner has wept over their sin? Well, I know that weeping cannot save us. And we know that we're saved by grace alone. But it's surely an outward sign of an inward grief and sorrow for sin. And Christ wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thee, and ye will not. It was a matter of the will. I would, ye would not. It was the matter of the will, John 5 and 40. You will not come to me. It's the matter of the will. And if you say to me, why am I not saved? It's because you are not willing to be saved. It's a matter of your stubborn will. You refuse to come to Christ. You will not have this man to rule over you. You will not repent. You will not come to Christ. You cannot blame the Lord. You cannot blame the doctrine of election. You're responsible before God to repent and to turn from your sin and to seek the Lord while he is near and to call upon him. But I'll tell you this. He was making a reference to Jerusalem. How oft would I have gathered thee and ye would not. And then he goes on to say, as a hen gathered her chicks under her wings, and she would not, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Think of it. The door of mercy was closed once and for all for that generation in Jerusalem. And we know that our Lord was making reference to AD 70. But it was also protracted to the future, to Revelation 6. You'll read the same account. Where when the Lord returns and the Lord comes to this earth to judge the nations of the earth. The Bible says it's called the great day of his wrath. And the Bible says a sevenfold category of men from the king to the very pauper. You will discover that they're running from Christ, not to Christ. This notion that a sinner, as they've said to us, when I meet your God, that's what they say. So at least they believe in God. When I meet your God, here's what they say. I'll wave my puny fist in his face and I'll tell your God what a dirty bully he is. We've heard them say that. Uh, why would he let children die of cancer? And so on and so on. We've heard it all. God's not to blame for sorrow and sin and suffering. Adam is. There's the one you should blame. Adam brought it into the world, not God. God so loved the world. And he saved sinners from Adam's sinful fallen race but i'll tell you this whenever that judgment comes the bible says that they'll cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them to hide them from the face of the of the wrath of the lamb you know it's a forgotten doctrine isn't it we hear about the blood of the lamb and rightly so we hear about the love of the lamb rightly so we hear about the book of the lamb we hear about the bride of the lamb what about the wrath of the lamb revelation 6 that's what Christ is referring to here. Jerusalem, AD 70. And then to the last judgment of all the nations. Jerusalem would be a mirror image of what was going to happen to the very nations of the earth. And he spoke it to the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says, you know, it would be better in that day if you never had children. That's AD 70. For what Titus, and you would see what Titus would do to your children. Better not to bring children into the world. To have them to suffer that fate in AD 70. So the Lord said blessed. Blessed are the very barren. And the wombs which never bear. And the paps which never gave suck. Better literally never to have children. 
and to bring them into the world to suffer what would happen to them in AD 70. That's what the Lord said to the daughters of Jerusalem. And then he projects his prophecy to the last day. The last of the last days are upon us. When did they start? I'll tell you when they started. Over 2,000 years ago. The last of the last days started at Calvary. And we are now in what is known as the last of those last days. We don't know when our Lord will return. But I'll tell you this. We're not far away from the second coming of Christ. And what if? What if? The Lord was to return tonight. I'll never forget this. And our brother Noel Shields is in the meeting tonight. I'll never forget it. It was in Lurgan Free Presbyterian Church. And he was preaching. And in the middle of his preaching, he finished. And then he sung the hymn 151 in our hymn book. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. He got to the second verse. Now I'm going to bang the pulpit so don't, don't be suddenly waking up. And thinking you're in your own house and get up and make yourself a cup of coffee, all right? And he went like that on the second verse and he said, Stop! Stop! I'll never forget it. I stood there and I was shaking and so was he. I looked at the organist, Mrs. Todd, and her eyes were like a rabbit caught in the headlights of a car. <laughs> and I thought, What's wrong? And he leaned over and he said, What if that was the second coming of Christ? Where would your soul be? Where would it be? You can be thankful that it was Noel Shields that stopped this meeting and not the second coming of Christ. And then he said, let's bow in prayer. He never finished the hymn. I've used that as an illustration so many times and I've never mentioned who it was, but I thought I would do it tonight and give the credit to our brother. I'm not in the gimmicks, by the way, so I'm not going to do that at the end. But what if? Where would you stand with God? Where would your soul be in eternity? These are important questions. Look at me. Listen to me. Where do you stand with God tonight? If Christ was to come now, it's too late. Where would you be? They answer it honestly in your soul. Heaven or hell? Saved or lost? Would it be glory or despair? Where will you be in eternity? Tell me. Is it well with your soul? It matters little what you have in the bank. It matters nothing what possessions you have. It matters little what property you have. It matters little whether you have mortgage paid off. It doesn't matter if you have enough money to make sure your children are well off. I'll tell you this, there's no tow bar on the hearse. You come into this world a living soul. You go out of this world a living soul. The only thing you take with you is your soul. It's either saved or lost. And where? Tell me, where do you stand with God? You're not saved. Did you just say that? You're not saved. Does that not concern you? That Christ mentions something that came to pass in AD 70. And then he mentions another event that will soon come to pass at the end of the age and we're not far away from it. I marvel at the long suffering of God when we see sodomy paraded on our streets and we see children murdered in the womb. I marvel at the patience and long sufferings of God. Aren't you glad that we're not God? How gracious and merciful and loving and kind he is. But here we have him addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says they begin to say, listen to it. To the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and cover us. In other words, hide us from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Revelation 6, 17. And who shall be able to stand? I'll tell you who will be able to stand on that day. Those who are washed in the Lamb's blood. 
will stand on the day of the Lamb's wrath. Those who are written in the Lamb's book will stand on the day of the Lamb's wrath. Those who are washed in the Lamb's blood, written in the Lamb's book, and those who are welcomed as the Lamb's bride will be able to stand on the great day of the Lamb's wrath. But I want to tell you something. The Lord went on to say something remarkable. If they do these things in the green tree, what shall be done in the dry? I'll explain that in a few moments. If they have done this, it's a tremendous statement. In fact, it's one of the most solemn statements in Scripture, except for perhaps one the Lord said to the Pharisees when he actually said these words, ye shall die in your sin. That's the most solemn sentence the Lord ever uttered to religious leaders, to so-called good people, Morally upright as they thought people. And he said these words. They're the most solemn words I find in scripture. Ye shall die in your sin. There's no hope when a man or woman dies in their sin. But if they've done these things. And we could literally translate it like this. And I'm not trying to be smart. We could literally translate it like this. If they have done this to a green tree. What will become of a dry? If a green tree full of sap, a green tree full of moisture, a green tree full of life will burn with sins laid upon me under the fiery wrath of God. What about a dry, waterless, arid sinner when God pours out his wrath upon sin? When he makes insurrection for sin and searches out the hearts of men and women. What will be done to the dry tree? That's what that means. What Christ said. And he's referring to himself, the green tree. When he took upon himself all the sin of all God's believing people. The green tree burned. If you've got a wood stove. And you're burning timber at present. Maybe you're feeling the crisis with the fuel and you're down to the table and chairs now and the cabinet. <laughs> Maybe you'll find if you've gone out and you've found an old stick and you've fired it in and you say, well, that'll give us a bit of heat. And it goes black and smokes. Put fire lighters in, more sticks in, nothing happens. You know why? It's full of water, full of moisture. Some trees are nearly impossible to burn, especially a green one. You take the kill and dry timber, you fire it in, it blazes and gives off tremendous heat. That's exactly what's referred to here by our blessed Saviour. These words are filled with solemnity, but they're filled with the words of entreaty. We've already looked at the trial of Christ. We've already considered uh, last evening as well the thorns upon Christ. Tonight I want you to consider this testimony from Christ as we study the journey to the cross during this week of Passion. I want you to think firstly that this is a testimony that's filled with the language of confidence. The language of confidence. I want to tell you now, friends, that it is certain that many who followed Christ, they did so with an antagonistic spirit. They did so with a resentful spirit. There were those who were uncaring, those who were cruel, those who were wicked, those who hated and they despised the Lord. There's no doubt they actually reveled in his trial. And they cried crucify him. 
and they wanted him put to death and they literally shouted and he was sentenced to death an execution on the cross by crucifixion but there were some who pitied Christ there were some who sympathized with Christ there were those who looked upon his broken body and they looked upon his battered and bloodied body and they began to weep for Christ and they began to howl for Christ and they began to cry to cry out for Christ and they had sympathy for Christ and the Lord turns to them and he says to those ladies I don't need your sympathy I do not need your pity these words are filled with a language of confidence he says weep not for me it's senseless weeping for me I don't need your tears your sympathy in other words what Christ was saying here he says, I am in control of all things that are happening to me. For my people's sake, I took the beating. I wore the crown of thorns. And love to my people in full control. At any time, I could have called 10,000 angels. My father could have set me free. I could have spoken the word. And they would have fallen to the ground as I did in the garden of Gethsemane. But I submitted myself to the divine will of the Father. And I am now in obedience to the divine commission. I am following the path that was given to me by my Father. I am in control of all that's going on here. The beating, the scourging, the mocking, the rejection. Did you not read in Isaiah 53 what would actually happen to me? Did the Lord not tell them so often that he must be crucified and on the third day rise again from the dead? Did he not tell them that he must be beaten and battered and scourged and despised and rejected and held in with no esteem among men? Did he not say in Isaiah he'd be wounded and bruised for our uh, transgressions and uh, he would be the one upon which the chastisement of our peace would fall. And this display of sympathy from the daughters of Jerusalem, it prompted Christ to address them and say, weep not for me. Christ did not need our sympathy. He does not need our prayers. He does not need our tears. Christ is in control of all things. He speaks in the language of confidence. He knows what's happening to him. He knows where he's going. He knows what he has to do. He will follow it through and he does not need tears and he does not need cries and he does not need sympathy. He's more or less saying, I'm fulfilling the divine commission. I'm obeying the will of my Father. I willingly give myself to this for you, in love to you. I surrender my will to the Father. It's the will for the Son that he suffers these things. And listen, we view the sufferings of Christ. Everything that happened to him at the hands of men and then at the hand of God at Calvary in union with Christ and the plan of our redemption. Everything happened to him was the divine will of God. Christ was in full control. Now I know he was a true man. But deity upheld humanity that Christ suffered on the cross for all the sin of all his believing people. I want to tell you something. He went of his own volition and he chose the path himself. And he chose the method and the means whereby he would redeem his people. 
and through sorrow and pain, he would have inflicted upon him the full consequences of sin upon the physical and upon the spiritual. And he would bear all the pain and sorrow and misery that sin has brought into this world for his people, those who repent and believe on him. The cross, my friend, was no mistake. It was no accident of history. Uh, now, I know it was a travesty of justice. I know it was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the world, but it was the divine will and the divine plan and the daughters of Jerusalem did not know that Christ did not need their, their, their tears and their cries because he was in control of all things. He approached the cross in full control of his mind and of his senses. He even on Calvary's cross when he was suffering refused pain relief. When they offered the sponge with the vinegar and the gall, it was a mixture. It was the equivalent to morphine that you would give to a patient on their dying bed to make their bed more comfortable, to ease the pain and to numb the pain. And Christ was offered it. And he turned his head away. He wouldn't take any pain relief. He would bear all the sorrow and all the pain and all the suffering and love to sinners like you and me. He willingly went to suffer and to die upon the cross to shed his life's blood, the, the price for sin and the penalty for our sin. He chose to go to the bitter sufferings of Calvary. He chose of his own will and his own free will and volition, his own disposition, simply because he loved sinners like us. On the cross, he lovingly became our substitute, our sin bearer, the sacrifice and the one offering to turn away divine wrath, to extinguish by his blood the guilt of every sin, to give you peace with God, an everlasting life, and a home in heaven for all eternity. And God raised his son from the dead, all in the divine plan and the covenant of redemption. Christ would come. He did not need the tears and the cries and sympathy of the daughters of Jerusalem. Weep not for me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I have to do. And it will be finished. It will be done. And my people will be saved from their sin. Now tell me, is it nothing to you that Christ has suffered, bled, and died on the cross? Is it nothing? Does it not mean anything to you? Not a thing to your soul. Is there nothing in your heart or mind now that could be touched with the sorrows and sufferings of Christ. You see, friend, you need to weep for yourself. You need to weep for your sin. And you need to weep over those sins that will damn your soul in hell. And then you need to keep your eye on the cross. And you need to come to Christ with your eye on the cross and see one who has taken the sinner's place, who has suffered divine judgment for sin, who can save you from sin, death, and eternal hell. And you need to come to him. There's no use saying my mum's saved or my dad's saved. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, and people I know are saved. And it's a good thing that families are saved, but you're not. You need to come personally. You need to come as an individual. You need to come to Christ. You need to weep over your sin. You need to weep for Christ. 
be to weep for yourself. And that's what he said to the daughters of Jerusalem. Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I want to tell you something. All who come to Christ by faith, they will be saved by him. Did you hear that? All who come in repentance and faith to Christ will be saved. John 6, 37, him or her that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out of you, take you in. I want you to think secondly, this testimony from the lips of Christ to the daughters of Jerusalem, it's not only filled with the language of confidence, but it's filled with the language of compassion. I want to tell you to remember by this time, this time you've got to see this. By this time Christ had suffered horrendously at the hands of cruel and wicked men. I'm not going to go over it all. We've preached on it at length on Sunday night and last evening as well. The trial of Christ, his sorrows and sufferings. But he had been taken from the blood, sweat and the agonies of Gethsemane uh, to the Jewish council and then to Pilate's judgment hall. Six times, that's right, six times Christ was set on trial. Three religious trials and three political trials at the hands of the Jewish leaders, the high priest, the former one, Annas, and Caiaphas, and then twice at Caiaphas, and then again with Pilate twice, and then Herod six times, three religious trials, tried and found guilty falsely of blasphemy. And then there were three political trials whereby Herod and Pilate both found no fault in him. Nevertheless, they scourged him, mocked him, and crucified him. His body was scourged with a Roman whip and it was beaten with a rod. Roman soldiers stripped him and they placed and plaited a crown of thorns on his head. And in order to get those crowns down, they beat the head with a, a rod or a reed and they beat the thorns into the head. They literally hammered the crown of thorns into the lovely kingly brow of Christ. And with a reed in his hand and a purple robe upon him. They bowed the knee and they mocked Hail, King of the Jews. They spat upon him the worst form of human contempt. If you wanted to show contempt for any person, any person, not just the slapping in their face, which is contemptible, but spit upon someone, it's the lowest form of human contempt that you could ever do on a fellow human being is to spit upon that person as if they're that's what it really means. And they spat upon the face of Christ. Not privately, secretly, behind his back, right into his face. That's what they did. They spat upon him as he was looking at them. Deprived of sleep and ruthlessly beaten, they led him outside the city walls of Jerusalem, carrying his cross. I know we see some of the films or pictures on these Stooped over with a cross. He seems to stumble and they compel Simon the Cyrenian to lift the cross and carry it. Remember, he is divine, we know. But he's truly human. That human body was like your body except for sin. It succumbed to tiredness and pain and affliction. The same as your human body would have. Being put through such beating and scourging and mockery and shame. This was the condition of Christ when he met the daughters of Jerusalem. And remember, he didn't look for pity. He didn't say, remember me. They speak well of me when I'm gone. Make sure you visit this injustice. And make sure that this trial, and I'll vindicate it later on. He didn't. He simply says, weep not for me. 
Weep not for me. You see, the Lord had concern for these daughters of Jerusalem. He had concern for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He had concern for those that were listening as he spoke. And I believe his voice was strong the same way on the cross. Even in what we would call human weakness, the Bible says he cried with a loud voice. I mean, it means to holler. You couldn't do that. That's why I believe gaiety upheld humanity at the cross. And he cried with a loud voice. Especially he cried on two occasions. But one in particular. When he said it is finished, it was a loud voice. It literally reverberated through the universe. Demons in hell. And angels in heaven. And saints and sinners on earth. Heard that cry from the cross. It is finished. Didn't say I was finished. But it. The work the father gave the son to do. And I like this because you don't see it in the films and you don't see it in those so-called pictures of Christ, which I disagree with. His head's always down. The Bible says to me that when Christ died, died, listen to it, it says he bowed the head. His head was never down. The Lord was in full control. In fact, he prayed, Father, he lifted his head. He was in full control of everything that was happening to him. Man didn't kill him. Crucifixion didn't kill him in that sense. The Bible says he gave up the ghost. And he even said, I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. And the Lord chose the moment. And he says, it is finished. And he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. He shed his blood within the veil. Christ voluntarily gave his life. No man took it from him. No man took it from him. Although man is responsible for the evil deed that they did to the Son of God. And it has been visited upon many since. But I'll tell you this. He had time for the daughters of Jerusalem. He thought about others. Isn't it true? When we hear someone sing and we've often heard it. When he was on the cross I was on his mind. You see, everything Christ did was for his people. Everything. If you think about it, if you want to personalize it, I did coming down in the car and thank the Lord, went through everything the Lord did and I added my name in. Lord, you bore the crowns for me. You were spat upon for me. You, you did this for me. All of those things was for me. We sing that great hymn in our hymn book. Was it for me? Yes, all for me. A love of God so great and free. This is the condition we meet the Son of God in and the Savior of sinners. And he still has compassion and love for the daughters of Jerusalem. And he warns them of the judgment to come. And he exhorts them to flee to the mountains and to escape the city of Jerusalem for judgment is coming. You see the Lord, even here, you can see not only his confidence but his compassion and how compassionate he is. It was his love that took him from heaven to earth. Did you know that? His love. How great is the love of God. For God so loved. We can't find any adjectives in our English language to explain. Or expound the love of God. We sing about it in our hymn books. Oh the deep, deep love of Jesus. We could not fathom the depths. We could not reach the heights. Paul speaks of the breadth, length, depth and height of the love of God. The dimensions of it. I tell you something, there is no love like the love of Jesus. Boundless, pure, it's free. 
I know why he loved us. Took him from heaven to earth to die for our sins upon the cross. He took him from the shame and ignominy of Pilate's judgment hall to the place called Golgotha. There he laid down as our substitute in love. We sing in that great hymn, Was it the nails, O Saviour, that held thee to the tree? Nay, t'was thine everlasting love, thy love for me. Oh, how he loved us. Is it nothing to you that he is the sympathizing Saviour, that he is the compassionate Lord, that he is a God of love who loves you and sent his Son to die for you? And if you come to him, that you will receive of his love, his mercy, his grace, and his wonderful salvation. I want to tell you something. He not only in this act of compassion warned or showed his love, but he warned the daughters of Jerusalem. He spoke to them of A.D. 70. And of course, there are two judgments mentioned here. The judgment of A.D. 70 and the judgment of the last day. I believe you'll find it there in Isaiah 63. There's a reference there. I don't believe for one moment, although I've heard sermons preached on it. I'm not trying to be smart, by the way. I don't believe for one moment that Isaiah 63 has anything to do with Calvary. If you're going to preach Calvary from that chapter, you have to tell the people, I'm lifting it out of its context. Because it's the last of the last days. It's the last judgment. Christ was in the wine press at Calvary. But here we find him in Isaiah 63, treading the wine press in the fierceness of his anger. We find his garments dipped in the blood of his enemies, Revelation 14, Revelation 19, Isaiah 63. And then we find the reference as well to Isaiah 63 in Revelation chapter 6. And the breaking of that sixth seal and that book of the revelation with earthquakes and the sun and moon being darkened and then the day of the Lord coming and then who shall be able to stand say that he warned you Christ is not only a refuge for grieving souls and that's true but he's a refuge for guilty souls and if you come to him he exhorts you to flee from wrath to come there is a judgment day friend and listen, your unbelief will not dispense with it. You can't say for one moment, well, I don't believe there's a judgment day. So if I don't believe it, you're like the ostrich putting your head in the sand. Well, if, if, I, have, if I can't see it, it's not there. If I don't know that it's there, then it doesn't exist. How foolish that would be. Every other statement of Christ is true and has come to pass. You think for one moment that he will fail when he says there is a judgment day when we must give an account to God. You see, this testimony to the daughters of Jerusalem is not only filled with the language of confidence and the language of compassion, but there's one final thought, and it's this. It's a testimony filled with the language of comparison. Notice what it says in verse 31. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? In other words, the green tree that's full of sap, that's full of moisture and full of life, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the green tree here. He's the green tree. In other words, Christ speaks of himself as a green tree that suffered as an innocent man at the hands of cruel and wicked men. And if the Roman soldiers, this is the first reference. There's a double emphasis here in the green and the dry tree. One, as I said, is for one judgment and the other is for the other judgment. And here's what Christ is saying. If I, a green tree, who's found not guilty, who's declared on 16 occasions in the course of my trial to have found no fault in me, 
He had done no evil. Even on the cross, we justly, but this man has done nothing amiss. Even Pilate's wife have now nothing to do with this just person. Herod found no fault in him. Pilate found no fault in him. For he is the sinless, spotless, impeccable, perfect Lamb of God. Without spot and blemish. A perfect human being. In the days of his flesh. Lived in full harmony and conformity to the law of God. And you can't keep, neither can I. And the righteousness demanded of us by the keeping of the law. It's an impossibility. You cannot establish it by moral living. But Christ has done it in the days of his flesh. Fulfilled the law for us. And when you believe and receive, he imputes, he gives to your account his righteousness. That he established as a true man, the second Adam. Everything Adam lost is regained in the second Adam and more. And then he satisfies the divine justice of the law. In death he pays the price and penalty and bears the punishment eternally. Our very hell. On his own body and soul on the cross. And here's what the Lord says. If the Roman soldiers have treated me. The sinless spotless son of God. The green tree. Full of moisture. Sap. And I have borne their fiery wrath. Do you think for one moment. That Titus will spare the dry tree of Jerusalem. That is in rebellion against Rome. That has sinned against Caesar. And has rebelled against every governor that was sent to Judea. Do you think for one moment. That they've done this to the green tree. Have a look at me. Remember. He said it. In his sorrow. When he was punished by men. They saw the thorns. The beard ripped from his face. The blood oozing from his back. They saw the marks and the spittle still on his face. And he says look here's the green tree. This is how the Romans treated me. Now do you think for one moment that they will spur you? A dry tree ready to burn? Not one bit. But he goes further than just Roman treatment of individuals because I believe the Lord's saying is this. The most important truth that if God now he's moving it from the Romans treatment of him and Jerusalem in AD 70 and him at Calvary. He's now moving it to the cross. And he's saying on the cross, the green tree. Whenever the green tree became responsible and accountable for all the sin of all his believing people, God spurred not his own son, but punished him as if he was the guilty one. And he suffered the divine fiery judgment of God, even though he was a green tree. Full of life, full of moisture, full of sap. Let me tell you something. Christ of himself never would have burned in the fiery wrath of God. But when he became the substitute, when he took sin upon himself who knew no sin, when he bore that accursed load, when our sins were laid on him, God turned his face away and the fiery wrath burned for the first time in created history and for the last time upon the darling of the Father's bosom with Christ, the green tree. And then the Lord says, what shall be done to the dry? God spurred not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. 
and listen to me. What will he do to you, sinner? That sin's found to have met in your body and your soul at the great white throne judgment. Or at death if you die without Christ and blood and salvation. I want to tell you something. A green tree's hard to burn, but a dry, arid, waterless tree will burn very easily. That's the reference. You don't hear preaching like that today. It's unpalatable. It's unpleasant. People would rather hear about the love of God, and I would rather preach on the love of God, wouldn't I? You have to be true to your soul tonight, because these are the words of Christ to the daughters of Jerusalem. How much more will be the punishment for sinners who die as a, a dry tree and enter eternity to meet a holy God, for our God is he not a consuming fire? No man has seen God and lived. The Bible says he's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, and he cannot look upon sin without judging it. And if your sins have never been found to have met in the body of Christ, then listen to me. They will meet in your soul in hell, and forever will be the burnings and torments of a Christless hell. Now tell me, does that not concern you? Does that not trouble you? What is wrong with your heart? What's wrong with your life? What's going on in your mind? If these things do not trouble you, if they do not cause you concern, what on earth is wrong with you? Can you so hate the Lord? Can you so hold him in contempt and reject him and suffer eternal hell? For what? For what? What would compensate on this earth for one minute in God's hell? What would compensate? Nothing. That's why the Lord urged them to flee. And they will call upon the mountains to hide them. They will find no refuge. You see, the only refuge tonight is Christ. His finished work. His precious shed blood. And if you will come by faith and believe that not only are you a sinner and you cannot save yourself, but that Christ died for you, that Christ suffered for you, and the great tree burned for you, and even though you are a dead, corrupt, dry, arid, waterless sinner, ready to burn, ready to perish, you come to Christ, you will discover the green tree has already suffered the fire of wrath for you. You will find all your sins to have been perfectly met and the body of the substitute, Christ himself. He rose from the dead. God has accepted the sacrifice and all who come on the ground and merit of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, God will forgive, pardon, save and give eternal life. Now, will you come? Will you come tonight? Will you trust the Savior? I can't save you, but I pray the Spirit of God will back home, burn in and bless the word to your heart tonight and bring you to Christ. Let's bow briefly in prayer. You know, if the Lord has spoken tonight, and I know we haven't been and we don't make too many appeals in our meetings, we believe salvation is of the Lord. And we try to steer clear of emotionalism. But we do believe that in gospel meetings we have to test the water see where the spirit is working and moving but is there someone tonight and perhaps you say yes I've been thinking about becoming a Christian for a long time and have never taken the step of faith 
I've never trusted Christ. If I die now, preacher, everything you said, I know it's true. I know it's true. I know I need to be saved. Well, why are you not saved? Would you not come tonight? What is it that keeps you back? What's more important than your soul and the Savior? Can you refuse him who loved you so much? Or will you come tonight? Say, preacher, I'd love to come, but I don't know how. Well, listen to me. We're not monsters. We're not going to make you a free Presbyterian tonight, believe me. I've said it again, uh, and I mean it. We're not going to make you a free Presbyterian. We wouldn't cross the street to make you a free Presbyterian. Certainly would go to the ends of the earth to point you to Christ, the only Savior. Will you come? Will you come to Christ tonight? Will you do it? Will you say, Preacher, Christ for me. God's spoken to me. I've heard what you said. I know what I need to do. Will you do it? Will you do it now? Just by your heart, between you and God, and tell the Lord you're sorry. You really mean it for all your sin. If you ask him to forgive you, you tell him, I believe, Lord, you died for me. You took my place. Lord Jesus Christ, will you forgive me? Would you please come into my heart and save my soul? And go a bit further and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving my soul. And now you need to tell someone you've been saved. You'd ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit that you might live the Christian life. Now, if you need help tonight, we can't save you, but we can point you to Christ. He can, and he's here tonight. Christ is here. And I'm finished speaking with one last thing to say. If all of a sudden the Lord appeared in this room and you went home and you said to people, you'll not believe this, the Lord appeared in Analong in that meeting last night. Can I tell you something? You'd be totally wrong. He's already here. He only would have made himself visible. He's here tonight. He's standing. His presence is here. His arms are open wide. He's calling you to repentance. And he's calling you to come to him. Are you going to refuse that? Christ, not Thomas Martin. Christ, I'm only a mouthpiece for God. Christ said, come, come on to me. Will you come? Will you do it? Will you do it now? And if you do need help, the Reverend Harris, myself, or maybe some good Christian friend that you know or family member, you don't need me. But if you need any help, any help spiritually, then we'll be here for as long as it takes. Open up the Bible and show you from the word of God how you can be saved. Father in heaven, we thank you for thy word to our hearts. We pray you'll bless this word beyond the reach of the enemy. Let it not fall upon wayside. Let it not fall among st stony ground. Let it not fall among thorns and thistles. May it fall upon good ground and bring forth fruit even unto life eternal. Part us with thy fear and favor. May those of us who were saved leave this house prayerfully very carefully pondering the things we have heard and for those who are out of Christ without a saviour may they be given the gifts of repentance unto life faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ may this be the night of their salvation or even their restoration for we humbly ask these things believing with thanksgiving bless the food and the fellowship afterward in Jesus precious name